As you know, we're going through a series right now called Awaken. I think we just experienced a little bit of that right now, didn't we? And what an amazing picture that we would do, we would participate in the words that Beth read from Revelation, that we join the elders, the angels that are singing around the throne day and night, declaring God's holiness. It's an amazing thought. So it's awesome to be here with you this morning. We're journeying through the book of John, the fourth gospel. If you're new to Northland, you can backtrack a little bit and, and look at on, on the website, find some of those sermons, and, and find out a little bit about these Jesus stories that we're exploring, where we're investigating the life of Christ, who he was, what he did, the impact that that had in those conversations, those relationships in the first century, all the way to how it's impacting us in the 21st century and for all of eternity. And so we're unpacking that. We're in the fourth chapter of John uh, today, and we're going to be looking at that story, an incredible interaction that Jesus has uh, while he's traveling. But before we get there, I want to talk about uh, what is, is sort of at the center of this story the way that Jesus uses a basic element, an everyday common, a practical substance that we need in our lives as humans, and, uh, and, and the way he turns, pivots that conversation to something much more deep. But before we get there, let's talk about this substance, water. We're around it constantly, aren't we? In fact, hopefully most of you have at least drank half of what's required by your doctor. I'm sure if we took a poll, eight cups eight ounces of water, um, hopefully you're on track. Um, we require a lot of water to sustain our daily existence. 71% of the earth is covered in water. So even from an ecological standpoint, we understand what it means humanly uh, to be surrounded uh, by water. The average human is 60% water. Uh, infants are 75% on average. That's a lot of water. When I went home last night, my son had a watermelon sitting on the counter, ready to be carved up, so I had to do a little research. Do you know how much water is in a watermelon? 96% water. No wonder it's called watermelon, right? Um, Florida, we're surrounded by storms. Even though summer is officially not here yet until June 21st, uh, we were reminded last night that the storms are here. In fact, power went out three times uh, during yesterday's church service. It was awesome. Um, a lot of scrambling, a lot of crazy things going on. But we will be, we'll be paying attention, won't we, over these coming weeks and these coming months. What's happening in the Atlantic? What's happening in the Gulf? Where are these storms going to land? And hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll dodge them again this summer as much as possible. So practically speaking, water has a huge effect on us as humans, but there's also a mythological uh, part to uh, water. There's a lot of legend that's been told over the centuries. In fact, I just grabbed a few snapshots of some of those. Um, I grew up, you know, around elementary school, um, middle school in the 80s. Uh, Indiana Jones was my guy. Uh, you might remember the quest that he had in trying to find the Holy Grail, this cup that Jesus would have used at the Last Supper, and this idea that if it could be scooped with water and drank from, eternal life would be available to that person. Maybe at a much more uh, shallow, comedic level, you're familiar with Monty Python. Um, I love the description of this online, a low-budget search for the Holy Grail, and that's about what you get in that, in that uh, depiction of King Arthur 
and his men trying to find the Holy Grail. In our house, we debate a lot. You know, whenever there's a sequel to a movie, which one we like, which one we didn't like, we all agree the last Pirates of the Caribbean was the worst. Um, but nevertheless, there you have the story of Jack Sparrow trying to find the fountain of youth, or even here in Florida, we understand that a little bit, St. Augustine being just two hours north of us, um, Ponce de Leon, uh, for a lot, of, a lot of time, people thought that he was actually in search for the fountain of youth. In all likelihood, he was just looking for gold, but it's a great story. Um, and so we understand even sort of at a legendary level, a mythological level, uh, the way that water has this curiosity, it has this magnetism that is not just for the nutritional value that we need, but it, it's rooted in something that Jesus even talks about and how he references himself, and we're going to talk about that. In fact, if you have your scriptures, turn to John chapter 4. Uh, those same verses will be in your worship guide, um, and they'll be on the screen as well. We're going to unpack the first half of this chapter. Pastor Matt will uh, teach part B next week, so come back. You can read in advance if you want and, and find out a little bit more about what happens in that story. But we're only going to get through the first half today. So let's take these verses. We're going to go through a few verses at a time, and then we're going to see just... Uh, the gravity, the magnitude of what Jesus is talking about, the implications of what it meant for the conversation he was having with this Samaritan woman at a well, and what it means, the implications for us today. Here's the scriptures. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. I love verses like this. They seem to be the ones that we most often would just skip over. You know, sort of these transitional sentences that are just really meant to get you from, from one part of a story to another. But I love what John includes here the point that he's trying to make. Apparently the Pharisees, which first of all, any of us who've grown up around church and we've read about the Pharisees, it's easy for us to be critical and to criticize them, right? They seem to be the ones that are always nagging at Jesus, always missing the point. And here we have another example of them doing that. But I love what uh, one of my favorite Christian writers, Philip Yancey writes about Pharisees. He actually describes how each one of us, in fact, are recovering Pharisees if we're honest with ourselves, because in the same way that they're missing the point here, we miss the point all the time, don't we? And, and John takes a minute to describe this interesting uh, image, almost like you've got a chalkboard, uh, and, they're, and they're tallying up who has more baptisms. Oh, no, it's not Jesus, it's John. John just took the lead notes. It's now Jesus. Um, and he even, I just think even by way of humor, John even says, but it, even, it wasn't even Jesus, it was his disciples. I mean, there's a whole adventure here and missing the point. Don't we often do that as Christians and as the church ourselves? I was thinking about this and thinking about how we even here at Northam, we'll get a question once in a while where a church, a new church will pop up nearby, a brand new church that's just small and starting up. And somebody will come and ask us and say, does it frustrate you guys, do you get frustrated, annoyed that a church would pop up just a mile or two or three right around the corner when Northland's already here? And the answer is, of course not. We need more churches in our community. They are not our competition. Have you ever skipped church? Don't admit this right now, but have you ever skipped church 
on a Sunday morning and been out in the community, have you noticed how many people are not in church? It's, it's a few, right? Not a part of a community of faith, not connected to the body of Christ. We need more churches in the area. So often we miss the point. We try to measure our spirituality uh, by counting how much good we are doing, sort of that vending machine, religiosity versus relationship that we've been talking about the last few weeks. And John is pointing out here, we have to stop. And in fact, I love what Jesus modeled here. Instead of engaging in this pointless conversation, this debate that really had no significance to it, what does he do? He just keeps going. He leaves Judea and he's heading back north to Galilee, something that we could learn ourselves. Now he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. This is actually the only portion of scripture in the gospels where Jesus is described as tired. It's the only reference made. There's other references to him being thirsty. There's other references uh, to aspects of his humanity uh, where he might have wept. But here is a picture that John is taking time to highlight that Jesus, the God that we worship, he is in the theological word, he is eminent. Jesus is the one that comes near. He is incarnate. It's because of the way that he suffered in the same way that we have suffered, that he can sit at the right hand of God and he empathizes, he understands our struggles, our weaknesses. Earlier, we were worshiping God for his transcendence, the flip side of that, that theological arc, that God, the Father, is totally other. He's above, he's beyond. And John is pointing out here a, an aspect of Jesus' humanity that he doesn't want us to miss, that even though Jesus was 100% God, he was 60% water. He was human. He was God in the flesh. He walked this earth. He went through situations that we all are struggling with, challenged with, wrestling with this morning. And so he's tired and it's hot. It's like Florida hot. It's noon and he's making his way to this well. But he's, in order to get there, he has to make a decision to move from Judea to Galilee to travel north. He could either go through Samaria, which would be the fastest route. In fact, um, you can look at a map here. Um, the easiest route would be to cut right through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. But as I mentioned a month or so ago when, when I referenced this story, what often happened among the Jewish elite, scholars, the intellects, those that despised the Samaritan people, and there was great division, great polarization between the Jewish people and the Samaritans that went back hundreds of years. The disdain for them was so deep that often instead of taking the direct route from, from Judea up through to Galilee, they would add three days to their journey in order to avoid having to interact, have a conversation, even be around another Samaritan. And so they would go through Perea, and that dotted line that it crosses over, that's the Jordan River. So three days over the Jordan, into Perea, up north, back over the Jordan, into Galilee, just to avoid interactions with Samaritans. We don't know why Jesus went straight through. The scriptures don't tell us. Maybe, maybe it was a time thing. They just, 
He was busy. He wanted to get to where he needed to be. But knowing Jesus and knowing what we see transpire in this story, Jesus knew there was a conversation that needed to be had with someone that most among his peers would have avoided, who would have deflected, someone who is in that part of their culture marginalized, sidelined. And Jesus goes and interacts with this person. Let's look at who that is. A Samaritan woman came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy Chick-fil-A probably. Um, The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Not only was there this ethnic polarization and division, she's actually pointing out in even greater detail for her personally, she's a woman, a Samaritan woman, and by all of the code, the religious codes and laws that were written up over time, Jesus as a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, should have had no business interacting with her. And not only does he come to that well, but he comes and he asks to have a drink from the same cup that she's drinking from. This is what the scripture says. Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well? and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. A well back in that time period in that region would have been on average around 100 feet deep. Most wells that were maintained and and kept um, in good good standing would have had 100 foot of, of rope made out of goat hair with a container made out of goat skin a bucket that could have been dropped down and, and drawn water. We don't know if that, um, if that well had uh, all of those, those materials available, but what we do know is that Jesus, not having his Nalgene bottle, not having his recyclable cup on him, had to ask to drink from the same cup as this woman who he should not even be having a conversation with. What does that say about Jesus? It's an incredible picture of what he's communicating about the the walls that he came to break down. And he talks about how everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling to eternal life. And she said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Depending on where she lived, it could have been up to upwards of a mile back and forth to go draw water. Maybe you've seen pictures or you've gone to the Middle East, parts of Africa, where they carry the water jugs on their head. It's, it's a lot of work. And she's saying in a very practical way, tell me how I can have this living water and save some time and some energy. And Jesus is beginning to pivot the conversation and say to her, there is an aspect of who I am that I'm going to explain to you and it's going to change everything for you. This idea of living water in the Greek, it could also be translated as flowing water, this this sense of overflow of life. It intersects eternity with the present. It takes a cup of water which can quench our thirst 
for the here and now. And Jesus is offering a sip from a draft that will quench her for all of eternity. She would have known about water in even, even the Old Testament sense. Samaritans, while they didn't believe everything that, that Jews believed, they did believe in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. She would have been familiar with this story in Exodus, where Moses is 40 years leading the Israelites as they left Egypt, and they're wandering, and the Israelites are mad. They are hot, Middle East hot, and they're tired, and they're complaining, and they're saying to Moses, is this what you brought us out here for? to get lost for 40 years and then die of thirst. And this is what Moses, what the Lord, how the Lord says to Moses uh, to tell the people, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb, strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. She understood she was getting an idea of what Jesus is referring to, the Messiah, the one who was going to come and fulfill all that they were craving and desiring and looking towards. F.F. Bruce, a great New Testament theologian, writes it this way. He says, the soul's deepest thirst is for God himself who has made us so that we can never be satisfied without him. And Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. It's an incredible picture. Jesus is taking an ordinary, seemingly uh, non-consequential interaction with, with someone who thinks they came there just to draw water, and he's beginning to connect something of eternity into their present situation. He wants to do that with us right now. We'll get to that in just a second. Jesus changes the conversation. He says, go and call your husband and come back. Got real personal. Probably up to that point, even though it was kind of this theological, um, you know, discussion that they were in, all of a sudden it gets very personal. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. How did Jesus do that? No LinkedIn, no Facebook, no social media, no Google. Like, what just happened there that Jesus, the living water, is all of a sudden moving the conversation from something that is every day to something that is for all eternity? He's seeing and observing and stating something that he knows about her, even later in the chapter that Pastor Matt will talk about next week. She goes back to her village and says that Jesus knew everything about her. How? How is it possible that Jesus knew? Well, I want to offer you three implications of what Jesus is saying, not only to the Samaritan one, but he's, but he's saying to us. What is Jesus communicating about who he is? What does it say about our creator, what does it say about how he views each of us? And what does it say about the conversations that Jesus has for us? Jesus said early, earlier, if you knew, what did he meant by that? If we knew what? Let's look at that a little bit. If you knew that before the foundation of the world, I knew you. 
That's what Jesus is saying to the Samaritan woman. I know the details. In fact, before the foundation of the world, before the earth was ever created, I knew you. How do we know that? In John 1, it talks about how Jesus was there in the beginning. There was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was with God in the beginning. So before time and space ever existed, pre-Genesis, Jesus existed eternally. His birthday, not quite December 25th, 00 AD. Hate to burst anybody's bubble. I'm sure Mary had in her desk drawer you know, a, a birth certificate that acknowledges, acknowledges Jesus' birth and where it happened and when it took place. But the reality is, the scripture's reminding us here that Jesus was with God in the beginning. He has existed eternally outside of time and space. His birth on planet Earth was just a biological detail. He has existed beyond time and space. And then it goes on and it gets even deeper. Because not only was he existing, not only did Jesus exist pre-Genesis, he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Have you ever thought about the implications of that? Jesus existed before the heavens and the earth were formed. Jesus existed before Adam and Eve ever took their first breath. And then it says that Jesus chose us in him before any of those things happened, you and I were thought of pre-Genesis 1-1. My birthday, March 8th, 1973, born at Manatee Memorial Hospital in Bradenton, Florida. My mom, I'm sure, had in her drawer in a file my birth certificate that said when that day happened, where it happened. But the scriptures are telling us that there's a different reality. That's a detail that acknowledges when I showed up on planet Earth. But God had already thought of each of us. He had already thought of that Samaritan woman. He already knew of the details of her life, even before Genesis. Secondly, I placed you in this exact time and space, no sooner and no later. That interaction, that intersection, that conversation at that well was not by accident. It was not by coincidence. Where you sit in this room, what's going on in your life, the gifts, the story, the skills, all the things that make up who you are, Jesus placed you in this exact time and space right where he wanted you, no sooner and no later. It says that we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. We're his artwork, his masterpieces. And somehow in God's mystery, pre-Genesis, he prepared in advance works that we would walk into and accomplish, conversations that he foreordained, that he predestined, that he had set in motion long before we knew that those conversations were to take place, those divine interactions. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, which means not only did God place that Samaritan woman right where he wanted, and he's placed you and I right where he wants us. It means that whether we like it or not, he placed the people that are sitting right next to us right where he wanted them. The people in our neighborhoods, the people in our workspaces, 
the people that we would just rather dodge, avoid, go around, three days, we'll do it, just help me not have to interact with that person. God put those people in our lives for such a time as this, before the foundation of the world. It says a lot about God's love for us, his intentionality for each of us, but it says a lot about who he is, that he would love us with that level of detail and intricacy. It means every conversation has the potential to just be trivial. We have a lot of fun, trivial conversations in my house. Those are good, we need those. Every conversation has the potential to just be transactional. We need those as we go out and and go grocery shopping and do the things that we do every day. We do a lot of transactional conversations, but Jesus is reminding us that there's also something much deeper taking place. Conversations have been set in motion before the foundation of the world that we would intersect with another human and the living water would show up and the trajectory of that conversation and our lives would be changed forever. In fact, that city that this Samaritan woman lived in, you're gonna find out next week, was changed because of what God did in her life. It changed the trajectory of everything. And you play a key role in shaping Christ's story. He includes us, involves us, brings us in to this worldwide mission of advancing the gospel and seeing the good news advanced in our everyday actions and conversations. I got to see this firsthand, this, this intersection of divine meets eternity, meets present, meets what seemed like just an ordinary moment that clearly showed God was doing much more. Back in 2011, I was headed to uh, Buenos Aires, Argentina. I was with Pastor Vernon, and there, were, uh, there was a small group of us, about five or six, and we were meeting uh, uh, some of our partners down there, Tim and Annette Gulick, uh, some friends that are, that are missionaries, and, uh, and we did some training with some pastors and spent a few days intensively all day just working with them on some of, uh, some of the, the training that we'd been doing for youth ministry and, and church planting. As we were wrapping up, uh, Tim and Annette said, hey, we've got a little bit of time. You haven't even been able to see Buenos Aires. Would you like to go and before you fly out, go downtown and just kind of experience some of the culture and just see a little bit about what the city's all about? We said, yeah, that'd be great. So we kind of made the arrangements the night before, picked the itinerary of the subway where we would get on and that next morning we got on and we were headed out. Tim and Annette said, hey, you're in a big city, just like New York, LA, wherever, watch your valuables right? So we all put our phone in one pocket, wallet in the other pocket, and we were very mindful as we started moving. We had about 30 minutes of traveling to uh, get to the city center. About halfway there, people kept coming on, kept coming on because they're going to work. And finally, this young man comes on. He's probably in his 20s. And as he comes on, he looks very pale. It's clear that this guy has had a rough night. Um, His complexion communicates what everybody knows instantly. This guy's sick. And they started clearing a path for him. Somebody gave him uh, their seat and he sat there. And as we started moving again, it didn't take long for him to stand and start walking down the center of the aisle where some of us were holding and, uh, and standing. And he started to become physically ill. And I think you can sort of imagine what that would look like without going into detail. 
And he got sick not just once, not just twice, four times he became violently ill down this aisle. And what happened, as you can imagine, everybody started pressing backwards, trying to get out of the way, just pushing, pushing, pushing to the back of the subway, the cart. And, and we were wondering, man, what, what, what does this guy have? We're about to get on a plane. Does he have a virus? Tim and Annette said, get off at the next stop. Wherever it is, we're just getting off. So as we exit, we start to take the escalator up to get back to, to ground level. And Vernon is standing next to me on the escalator and he says, my phone's gone. And we start to realize what had happened. It was a setup, right? Everybody was pushing up against each other and who knows how many people's valuables were being taken in that short moment and nobody could feel it. They're, we're all clearly paying attention to the chaos of what's happening in front of us, not paying attention, pressing up against other people, phones, valuables disappear. We get to the top, Vernon says, I don't like this. I would feel a lot better if we could get to a place where I could call my phone company, work on the internet and disable my phone. I just, there's information on there, you know, codes and passwords that I just don't feel comfortable. So we get to the top and, and Tim is looking through his phone, scrolling, scrolling. And he's looking around and he's saying to us, I don't know anybody in this area. I don't normally come to this part of town. I'm not sure where we can go. There was no cafes around. Um, and he's scrolling. And then finally, he sees a name, Jackie. Someone that he had known a while back but had not had a conversation with in some years decided to call. Jackie picks up the phone. She says, hey, I'm actually here. I would love for you to come over. It's not a problem. I'm feeling a little down, a little sick myself. I called in, um, didn't go to work today, so... I'm here, come on over. And so we go, we go to her apartment, Vernon uses the phone and the internet, and as he comes out, we start to circle up and pray. We hold hands, and as we begin to pray, Jackie, who is also in her 20s, this school teacher, she just puts her head down and begins to weep. And she begins to sob. And none of us really know what to do, and we just pray. And when we're done, we give some hugs, and we exit, we say thank you, and we wonder, what was that all about? Well, we got on a plane and left and found out the next day through an email the rest of the story. Apparently, Jackie was not physically ill, but she was emotionally ill. She had woken up that day and called in sick, because in her words, she felt like she was in a very dark place, very discouraged, very depressed. She called in sick, she called her mom. Her mom said, I'm coming over. Went to her apartment and just started reading Jackie's scriptures to try to remind Jackie of God's hope and his promises for her. But in, in Jackie's words, it wasn't working. She just was in that place where none of the scriptures really connected and she just was not encouraged at all by what her mom read. And so her mom said this, I'm gonna pray for you right now and I'm gonna pray that God sends you today a reminder of his love for you. Now, what's crazy, as you can already begin to imagine, 
the email that we got from Annette. It said, today we called Jackie from two blocks away when we were going into town. After Jackie got off the phone, she told her mom about what had happened on the subway, and she was happy that the two of us were coming over. Then Jackie met us at the door, and we all just kept piling in. Apparently, in the anxiety of the moment, Tim forgot to mention that there were eight of us. Once we introduced everyone, Jackie realized that we were all believers. And at that point, she started to think that we might have been sent in response to her mom's prayer. Think about it for a second. Before the foundation of the world, Jesus knows the details. He placed us in the exact time and space that we're supposed to be in. What would have to happen? What level of detail has to transpire for us to get on that particular subway that particular morning to see that young man have Vernon's phone stolen, pop up at a random subway spot, find a number that seemed totally by accident to show up in a person's apartment, not because Vernon needed to disable his phone. That's not why we were there. We were there because God had put that conversation together and arranged before the foundation of the world that we would step into that moment. Church, that exists around us all the time. That's the level of detail of who God is, that he would love us with that kind of intimacy and care to make arrangements behind the scenes that we may not even know are taking place. In fact, it's what brings us to this table. Think about it. We, we're talking about a scripture where Jesus uses a basic element of water. And we come to a table like this and we're reminded of two other basic elements that Jesus uses, bread and wine, to remind us of the intimacy, the care, the detail that He loves each of us. He takes bread and wine and calls us to this table and to a relationship that invites us to bring the eternal into this present moment and remind us both of who He is and what He thinks about each of us.